0: Sabbath. And it's uh, lovely to see you here in the house of the Lord. Um, If if you don't mind, I've just seen Yuri and Alexis are back from the UK. They're Brazilians, or they have something Brazilian in them, uh, and yet they've just been over to England to pay their respects to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. So, um, you know, I'm most impressed, uh, and good to see you back. They either went to England to see the Queen, or is for fish and chips, one of the two, uh, and uh, I need to clarify that. But good to see you back. Um, <clears throat> let's bow our heads as we open with the word of prayer. Dear Lord, we're about to open Your Word, and we know that when we read Your Word, we can also read it with a spirit of self-deception, looking for what we want. I pray now that as we open Your Word, that it will speak through me, to me, to us. Forgive us our sins, Lord. May your Holy Spirit manifest his presence now amongst us. We pray in your name, amen. This morning I would like to talk to you about forgiveness in the Gospel of Luke, which sounds rather academic, and it is. Um, I'm summarizing uh, a 30-page article I wrote on forgiveness. so there you go, Um, and if you want to read it, you can find it at academia.something, something, 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 uh, and just type in forgiveness in the Gospel of Luke, and you'll be able to read to your heart's content. Uh, But um, good news is, my sermon this morning is not 30 pages. Can we all say an amen? Amen. No, I was hoping for a longer amen, because I have the ability to go on for 30 pages if necessary. Yes, amen. So, uh, we're going to sort of summarize and really get to the salient points, why should we consider forgiveness? Well, first, let me start with a very personal reason. is that many of us struggle with guilt. What is guilt? It's when we are living with that hazy subjective experience where we're not sure whether we've done right or wrong, but we somehow feel maybe it wasn't right, And through that fog, the voice of God speaks to say that despite your subjective experience, there is an objective world out there of right and wrong, and that is speaking through to your heart, and you need to respond to it. Thank God for guilt, but it's something we need to deal with. So, it's worth considering forgiveness from a personal point of view. But more generally, my appeal this morning is is that we become ambassadors for forgiveness because this is a cultural virtue which is on the wane. Forgiveness is less important now than it was. You know, in New Testament times, it was already countercultural. You know, the Romans knew what clemency was, but in general, forgiveness was viewed often as a weakness. Today we have a culture which is moving away from valuing forgiveness. Let me explain how that's going. So we have a very forward-looking culture, especially here in the U.S., very forward-looking. And for forgiveness, what do you need to do? Look backwards every so often. It's about dealing with problems in the past, but if your culture is uh, very focused on the future, we end up with a culture which basically says, move on, forget and move on. We also have a culture which is less focused on community than it was. We have the benefit of these little things, yes, our little dummies. Get them out and give them a little suck and makes calms us down. Yes, and, uh, uh, and we realize that we don't need friends. Why? Because I've got my little Netflix or my Amazon Prime. And so, why should I go through the bother of sorting out interpersonal relationships when I can live without people? So, forgiveness. Why do we need it? Don't need friends not so many of them at least. So we live in a culture where its trends are inherently shifting us away from valuing forgiveness. Philip Reif, 1966, wrote a book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, which has become quite influential. Now, I hope that after I die, one of my books becomes influential. I'm never going to see it in my own lifetime, yes, but uh, after I die, maybe it will happen. But uh, his books become influential, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, and it was an analysis of British and American culture in the 60s, and he charts a shift away from what he describes as a moral demand system based on biblical ideas of right and wrong, where our goal in life is to do the right and avoid the wrong, a moral demand system, what's my goal? To live a morally good life to, and remember he's writing this in the 60s, to what he calls a therapeutic culture, where our aim is not to do right and wrong, but instead it is to achieve inner serenity and inner peace and to remove any obstacles for us to have positive emotions inside. And this shift has affected Christian spirituality. You know, we're looking at Luke this morning. In Luke, the term for forgiveness is aphiomai. It's literally to remove And often as not, it's about removing a debt. Sometimes we forgive the person, but more often than not, it's, I've got a problem with this person, and there's a problem between us. You owe me something. One person describes it as the forgiveness of a justice debt, a laying aside of one's legal rights. You owe me this. Hmm. Am I going to demand you pay it? no, I'm not. Now, bear in mind that justice is also a strong biblical value, justice. But justice on its own has a tendency to bite us. And the reason is, is that today's victim is tomorrow's perpetrator. So, when we have a culture which is promoting justice, 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 and there's no mercy, we end up with a brutally cruel environment and culture. Forgiveness has become something of the inner self, intensely psychologically, psychological, inward-looking. Today, we view forgiveness as a mechanism for changing my emotions, my outlook to the world, rather than a process of restoring relationships when right has not been done. I mean, just forgive it, think of it. If we've shifted from a moral demand system with right and wrong to a therapeutic culture, there's no such thing as sin, and if you don't have sin, why do you need forgiveness? It's just not necessary anymore. So that's the culture that we live in. But this morning, I would like to appeal to you that we need to take forgiveness seriously because our culture isn't God. God is God, and He is the one who decides what's right and wrong. It's that simple. So, this morning, I'm going to share with you a three-point sermon, yeah? When I was in nipper, my dad explained to me how to preach. He was a pastor, yeah? You have a top-and-a-tail introduction-conclusion- And then you have three points. You read a Bible verse, you explain it, you illustrate it. Another Bible verse, explain, illustrate, and then do it a third time. And by and large, the members are happy. Okay? By and large. Right? So, we've got a three-point sermon this morning. And my three points are this. Forgiveness costs. Forgiveness saves. And forgiveness transforms. Forgiveness costs. Forgiveness saves, and forgiveness transforms. So, forgiveness, how does it cost? Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, and here we have the narrator's summary of John the Baptist's sermon that he was preaching. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord, and in verse 3 we read, that he went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming, so this is his proclamation, this is his single narrow dominant thought of his sermon, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you know, this is a little ambiguous because, you know, whenever you have the word of in English, those of you who've been my students in Greek, you'll know that whenever you have of, now, you have to scratch your head and think, what's going on here? So, uh, an example would be love of God, yeah, the love of God. Is that our love for God, or is it God's love for us? It works both ways in English, and it works both ways in Greek. And here we have a baptism of repentance. So, am I being baptized in order to repent, or do I repent? Oh, and how am I going to express it? through baptism. The latter is more likely. I repent, and what do we mean by repentance? Well, it depends where you turn in your Bible. Old Testament, repentance tends to be a more physical thing. You're far from God, return to Him, turn around and come back to Him. When we come to the New Testament, there's also a psychological element, ale. It means to change your thinking, change your mind. So we get baptized. Now you know most baptisms uh, in, in the first century were something rather like you or me having a bath yeah, or a shower, a shower yes I uh, <clears throat> don't know how many times you do that once a week, once a month, however, often, but uh, uh, you uh, uh, get up, I always you know it's how I wake up it's either that or um, what's that liquid, dark brown liquid. So, shower. That's the Adventist version, isn't it? How we wake up in the morning. So, you get up, you go into the shower, uh, and you come out clean and awake, and that's your average baptism in the Jewish world. You get up, you go down into your mikvah, walk down the steps through the sludge from last night, and come up clean, supposedly. But what does John the Baptist say? He says, He's calling for a baptism of repentance. And this isn't in private. If you sinned in public, you repent in public. If you sin in private, you repent in private. And here he's saying there needs to be a practical demonstration of repentance. Hmm. We'll see why in a minute. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Huh. And again, that's ambiguous. Is it in order to receive forgiveness? That's possible. Yeah. The purpose. But it's also a result. I got baptized because I repented and, whoa, look what came. Free of charge. Forgiveness. Hmm. Wasn't anticipating that. But thank you very much. I'll take that. Thank you. Okay. Both of those readings work. Yeah. And those of you who are more holy, probably the latter reading. Those of you who are not quite so holy, yeah, I need to be forgiven. Right, what are the steps I need to do? Right, number one, repentance. Number two, baptism. Oh, good, got it in the bag. Okay, so uh, yeah, we can read it like that. Now, as we read on in Luke, he is very clear that for the offender, there is a cost. You need to go and get baptized in public. Uh, turn to Luke 24. Luke 24, this is Jesus talking to the disciples at the end of His ministry, and He summarizes their message that they are to proclaim. And would you believe it? It's not these three guys. Well, it sort of is. Uh, yeah, I mean, l- l- let's fit it in. Let's, let's be charitable to, to John. But John, Luke 24, verse 46 He said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in His name to all nations. So there's what you are to proclaim. What is the message? Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Links the two. It's less Jesus is coming again, although I'm sure that's there, but it, the core of their proclamation is that forgiveness, repentance, and forgiveness of sin are now linked to the name of Jesus. And when we turn to Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost, and the people, they are moved to their hearts, and uh, they ask Peter, what must we do? And he tells them, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So, we find in Luke that there is a cost to the offender. Forgiveness costs. And there is a good reason, because if there is no cost to sin, hey, why not just do it? But no, there has to be a cost to sin. Has to be a cost. There has to be a social cost to sin. Forgiveness costs there is also a cost for the victim. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. Now, these words, a little surprising. This is Jesus. This is not me. This is Jesus. Yeah, I wouldn't say these things, but He says it. Uh, And um, yeah. So, let me read verse 3. Be on your guard. He's talking to the disciples. If another disciple or if another brother sins, here's the first thing you must do. You must rebuke the offender. Oh, no, I don't like doing that. It's easier just to walk away, isn't it? And leave the situation. No, you must go and rebuke the offender. And. If there is repentance, what does it say? You must, hmm, this is a mistake in my Bible. It clearly, Jesus clearly can't have meant this, yeah? He says this, and let me take, you know, I'm getting old. I need some new glasses. Let me just check this. It says, if another brother sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is repentance, you must forgive must. Oh, but Lord, my heart isn't at the state for forgiving you. No, it says you must forgive. Oh, but I'm emotionally not ready to do No, it says, what does it say? You must forgive. Oh, well, uh, okay, I'll I'll have a go at doing that and see how we get on. But Jesus goes from bad to worse. I mean, just read the next verse. (laughs) What's going on here? And if the same person sins against you, seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. Oh, boy, boy, boy. I mean, in one day. So I'm picturing, you know, uh, I I don't spend enough time with my colleagues for them to sin seven times against me in one day. Yeah, you know, we're in and out of the office. My students come and go, yeah, and maybe I sin, they sin against me once in a class. You know, they go on their phones and watch things they shouldn't be. Where are you, students? Yes, so, you know, I I forgive them, I forgive them, yeah, uh, if they repent. Uh, What we're to do if they don't repent? Well, we find out later. Jesus doesn't tell us here what we're to do If they don't repent. But if they repent, we must forgive them. Hmm. You know, when I read this, I think of my childhood growing up with a brother. Oh, have you met him? You know him. Yeah. Uh, So, you can just picture the scene. There's a brother, me, two sisters. The truth is, is that I erred more than I was sinned against. Okay, that's the truth, right? But… you know, my brother sins against me. We shared a room, bunk beds. Yeah, didn't have one of these large 4,000 feet, square feet, American family homes. No, no, no. Uh, in England, we grew up in rabbit hutches, right? So we all share the same, same room and, uh, you know, uh, three different layers to the beds. Yes, and um, so, you know, before I'm even out of bed, he sinned against me. Yeah, <laughs> so he repents. What do I do? I must forgive him. Breakfast. He sins against me again. He won't pass me the marmalade. I have to reach and get it. What must I do? Forgive him. Okay, we're walking to school together. He says things that are clearly not nice and hurt me. What must I do? He repents. I must forgive him. Okay, we get to lunch. goes from bad to worse. He steals my sandwich. He repents. What must I do? Forgive him. Get home at the end of the... You can imagine. I mean, this guy, he's on a roll. And every time he says sorry, and as we go through the day, I'm questioning. I'm not going to to, um, insinuate anything by naming him. Yes, but a generic brother. Yet by the end of the day, what are you thinking? When this guy says he's sorry, does he really mean it? How many times... Am I meant to forgive him? In one day, if he repents, seven times. Hmm. And let's assume that it's seven times in one day. Now, the next day, he's really improved. Okay. But the day after, he starts sinning against me. What must I do? Forgive him. Seven days a week. 30 days a month. 12 months a year. There are 12 months. Yes. Uh, and let's not go any further. I'm just going to lose my track. Uh, but you've got to keep forgiving him. Even though I've got this slight suspicion that his repentance isn't quite genuine. You know, the early rabbis, they knew that people could repent. Or say they are repenting without it quite being genuine. And this is why they always say, repent and. And even in the New Testament, we get it. Repent and be baptized. Show it. Monty Python, the pinnacle of British culture. You can go on YouTube and you can watch a little skit, skit. It's called Monty Python, Germans Surrender. Yeah, and it's a little skit at the end of the Second World War. Yeah, and we grew up in the 70s, 80s, where the war, yes, it was, uh, you know, every time we lost to the Germans in football, yeah, we would say, okay, but don't you know it's 2-0 in the wars? Yes, that was our response. So however often we lost, yes, there we go. Uh, sorry, Andrew. But, um, uh, <clears throat> that, you know, so we've got this this little scene where we've got British general sitting at a table, and he's with his colleague, there's a soldier in the room, standing guard, British soldier, in walks the German general to surrender with his colleague. And the British general says, here's the first thing you must do, and you need to sign the papers. He says, all German land and air forces must cease operations and hand in their weapons. Are you ready to agree? Jawohl. Yes, sir. Signs. Second thing, all German uh, ships must go to an allied port and surrender. You happy with that? Yes. Signs. Number three, the German high command must say sorry for what they've done and promise never to do it again. (gasps) Oh, I can't do that, says the German general. I can't possibly say that. Well, if you don't, we're going to flatten Berlin. And he explains it. The, his colleague explains it to him. How flat? As flat as a pancake. Ooh. Okay. Sorry. No, no, that wasn't loud enough. Sorry that was too fast. Come on, come on, let's have a genuine repentance. Okay, on behalf of the German high command, I apologize and we promise never to do it again. Thank you. And as he's giving him the paper to sign, the soldier in the corner says, sir, you should know that he had his fingers crossed. (laughs) Repentance, how do you know it's genuine? Jesus doesn't say forgive them when you are sure that their repentance is genuine. There is a cost to forgiveness. There's a cost. The offender needs to demonstrate their repentance, and the victim must forgive. Must forgive. Hmm. Okay. Let's make this a little more positive. Forgiveness saves. Forgiveness saves. Let me share with you a chicken and egg situation, theological conundrum that we've got in the Gospel of Luke. Turn back to chapter 6, Luke 6. And I'll summarize this, and then we'll unpack it and go through in a little more detail. Verse 36 describes how we are to imitate our Father in heaven. Verse 36, chapter 6, Jesus says this, "'Be merciful just as your Father is merciful.'" So what's going on there? He's saying, your Father in heaven is merciful, and what are we to be? Merciful like Him. So here is the chicken, yeah? We are to be like, to imitate, to reflect our Father in heaven. But here is the egg. He imitates us at the same time. So we read verse 37, end of verse 37. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And in context, this is God forgiving you. So here is the problem. We reflect His mercy, but His mercy reflects us. When he forgives us, he forgives us because we forgive others, and we forgive others because we're reflecting him. It's a chicken and egg situation. Let's just unpack it in, in a little more detail. Verse 36. This is a summary of the preceding verses. Verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you, bless those that curse you, Pray for those that abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So, hmm, this is really a summary of what it means to reflect a merciful God out in our relationships. So, love your friends? Sure. Who are we to love? Our enemies. Enemies. Okay. So, what is he saying? When they hate you, what does justice permit us to do? Hate back. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You hated me, I hated you. Hey, we're quits. What does mercy say? Do good to those who hate you. When they curse you, what are we to do? Hmm. Now, I shared this in the... Um, it's not in my notes, but I shared it this morning. Uh, <coughs> so, you know, when I was a pastor, we would go out in-gathering, yeah, where you go out collecting for um, missions, uh, and uh, when I started off as an intern pastor, you know, uh, I, I remember one day I went out in gathering with um, my senior pastor, Pastor Massey. Yeah, he was from India. And uh, we were going around Birmingham, and we went to this, I went to this car sales place, and they were just rude to me. So I came out, and I, I said, Pastor Massey, yeah, I'm just going to try something, you know. Uh, they were really rude to me in there. I'm just going to, like a prophet, give a curse on them. And next year, when I come back, I'm going to see whether they've gone out of business or not. See if it works. Would you mind, Pastor Massey? And, uh, you know, thankfully, thankfully, I've started reading the Bible a little more, and I've read these verses. And I don't know whether that that business is still in operation. Who knows? I mean, we could go and see uh, whether my curse worked. But really, what am I being asked to do? Instead of sending out a curse... Bless them. Hmm. When they abuse you, pray for them. When they strike you, what are you about to do? I mean, this is our natural response, isn't it? Strike back. says, no. Go against your instinct, your demand for justice, and mix some mercy in there. If you love those, verse 32, who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Hey, it's easy to be nice to our friends. It's easy to forgive our friends. But Jesus and, you know, if they don't repent, they're my enemies. Okay, so I don't need to forgive them. But instead, what does Jesus tell me I need to do to my enemies? Love them. Poof, not much easier. Even sinners do the same. They love their friends. Verse 35: Love your enemies. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. You will reflect him. When people see you, they say, hey, you look like someone I remember, I, I recognize. You look like your father. You're a child of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Hmm. Be merciful Just as your father is merciful. So reflect him in your relationships. He is merciful. Let that ooze out into your relationships, not just with your friends, but with your enemies. Hmm. But now we come to the egg. This is how to save yourself in three easy steps. Number one 37 do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. And this is God giving to us good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. He always gives us more than we give out. Will be put into your laps. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Essentially what he's saying is this, and I'll say it very simply. How you treat others is how God treats you. The measure you measure others with is the measure God is going to measure you with. It's that simple. Why? Because He's not just a God of mercy, He's also a God of justice. And it would be unfair of Him to treat you in a way, and me included, it'd be unfair for Him to treat us in a way we don't treat others. forgive and you will be forgiven you want to save yourself go out and do some forgiving Lord's prayer the unauthorized version in Luke 11 I mean n- nobody knows this version but Jesus just says forgive us uh, yeah forgive us our sins as we uh, Forgive those who sin against us. Now, the King James Version, the authorized version, is Matthew 6. Turn with me to Matthew 6. And there in Matthew 6, that little clause that we've got in the Lord's Prayer is the only one that Jesus takes time to explain. Matthew 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as... It's conditional... As, okay, as, there's a condition. What must we do to get our sins forgiven? What must we do? Forgive those who sin against us. Huh, let me make it really clear. Jesus unpacks it just in case the disciples didn't get it, the crowd didn't get it. Verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's conditional. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness saves. Forgiveness costs, but it also saves. You want to save yourself? Treat others in the same way you want your God to treat you forgive them. And then the Lord looks and says, oh, they're reflecting me. Oh, I better carry on forgiving them a little more. Hmm. Do you know, it's almost as if we've got a spirituality for the holy and a spirituality for the not so holy, right? So, for the spirituality for the holy, now, you guys are all the holy, aren't you, right? So, You read, going back to Luke chapter 6, Yep, you are the chicken. Oh, we get up in the morning and we want to be merciful to others. Why? Because we've been impressed with the beauty of God's character and I just want to reflect that in my relationships with others. But let's pretend there's some outside who haven't quite achieved our level of maturity. I'm appealing to self-survival forgive so that you survive judgment day because the lord will then forgive you forgiveness saves now actually you know this isn't there's a there's a, a weakness to this and uh, it's highlighted uh, by augustine the church father uh, he he describes those verses we just read in luke and he describes what was going on in the church and this is what was happening right so, according to this theology, you can get up in the morning and you can say, right, Lord, I've forgiven my brother, I've forgiven my sister, I've forgiven my mom and dad, I've forgiven my work colleagues, right, now, party time, I can go out and do what I want because because I'm forgiving others, what's the Lord going to do to me? Forgive me, right, time to hit the streets, yeah, and the Lord He's just going to look down with mercy upon me. Why? Because I've forgiven everybody I can think of in my life. Mm -mm. It becomes an excuse to justify sin. This is why we don't just need justice. We don't just need forgiveness. We also need faithfulness. But that's another sermon. Okay, forgiveness costs. Forgiveness saves. Forgiveness also transforms. Turn with me to Luke 7, our Scripture reading. And I'm going to read verses 36 down to verse 39. And just listen to how Luke tells the story. He wants you to know that Jesus went into a certain person's house. Just listen. One of the Pharisees, asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears, and to dry them with her hair, and she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus went into whose house? A Pharisee's house just in case we didn't get it. Four times we're told a Pharisee's house. Now, when you're reading the Gospel of Luke, usually one story will develop themes in the previous chapter or previous section. Now, it's a, in Mark, they tend to be more isolated, episodic. So we read the previous verses, and guess what Jesus is talking about? The Pharisees. So let's look at verse 30. But by refusing to be baptized by him, by John the Baptist, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist's ministry, by refusing to be baptized by him, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. So who are the Pharisees? Those who didn't respond to John the Baptist's call to repent. Hmm. So Jesus is going into a house with a Pharisee, someone who may not have repented. They also accuse Jesus and John, read verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, whatever you do, you try the blunt prophetic Approach or you try the softly, softly, love them in approach, neither works. Hmm. And here we've got an unrepentant Pharisee. And they claim that Jesus eats and drinks with sinners and tax collectors. So I'm a little confused now because Jesus is with a Pharisee, and yet what is he doing with him? He's gone to eat with him. I thought Jesus only met with sinners and tax collectors. Maybe there's hope for this chap still. Hmm. Well, the other character in the story is a woman in the city who was a sinner. Hmm. We read the previous verse to the story. Look at verse 35. Maybe this is an allusion to her, just a suggestion. Nevertheless, wisdom, who is wisdom? Wisdom is in the Old Testament the personification of Yahweh. Read Proverbs. It's His teaching mode. It's His teaching presence. Nevertheless, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And in this story, we have someone who vindicates Jesus, the woman. Maybe she is one who is inhabited by wisdom. Chapter 8 tells us that there were women who followed Jesus look at verse 2 as well as some women who had cured who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna the wife of Herod's steward Huza, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their resources. There were these rich women who followed Jesus and they paid his gas bill. They paid his electricity bill. They paid his taxes. They paid his grocery bill. They were his patrons. And one of them is Mary. And we have a woman in this story who's clearly got enough money to buy alabaster and precious ointment and to pour it out on him. She is both a sinner and a rich woman. Maybe she's one of the. Maybe this is Mary. And if we push it even further, what a miracle. She's been transformed from being inhabited by demons to being inhabited by wisdom, the presence of God Himself. Forgiveness transforms. Well, the Pharisee, he thinks two things. True prophets would not allow A sinful woman to do this. Hmm. Jesus is allowing the sinful woman to touch him, therefore he can't be a true prophet. That's his logic. Jesus reads his heart. (laughs) It's one of the scariest things to think about. Because the sins we treasure most are the ones that are deepest within us. He reads his heart. And now he personalizes it. Simon, I've got a little story to share with you. And this isn't just to you, Simon. It's for everyone. I'm deliberately not going to put in a load of detail so that anybody who reads this can read it as applying to them. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. A denarii is about a day's wage. So think of it. Maybe a year and three months' wages, however much that is. 50000 40000 $50,000, 60000 $60, $70,000, whatever you're on, $100,000. There was another who owed 50, so maybe a month and a half's wages. When they could not pay, he cancelled. <laughs> the Greek word is literally, he graced them. He graced them. He canceled the debt of both of them. Now, Simon, I've got a little puzzle for you. Work it out. Which of the two will love him most? Now, one commentator I read suggested that if Jesus spoke this in Aramaic, there is no word in Aramaic for giving gratitude, and maybe by love, he's really saying, which demonstrated the greater gratitude? Yeah, and I don't mind whether it's love or gratitude. Both are good. But which will show the greatest love? And here is how forgiveness transforms. It fr- transforms a relationship where you like to where you love. See, Simon liked Jesus. The woman loved Jesus. Forgiveness transforms from like to love. You see, Simon, when I came into your home, yeah, you, you liked me. <laughs> yeah, you invited me, thanks. But you didn't offer any water. Instead, yeah, to wash my feet, instead, she's been bathing my feet with her tears. My feet, for goodness sake. You know, for me, feet are the ugliest part of the, of the human body, yeah, I don't know. That's why I always wear shoes, yeah, I always cover my feet. You know, you may think, handsome, 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 yeah? But you get to my feet, ugly, 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 right? Well, you don't go around pouring your tears on someone's feet. Hmm. When I entered, you didn't kiss me, not even a little French kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing me, kissing my feet. No anointing my head with oil, but she's been anointing my feet. Forgiveness transforms from like to love. You see, for one who's been forgiven little, they love little but to one who's been forgiven much. They love much. Forgiveness has the power to turn a relationship was, hey, I like you, I like you, but now we're going through a rocky phase. It has the power not just to mend, but it has the power to deepen. And here it's talking about our relationship to the Lord. It has the power to turn like to love. Jesus then concludes by turning to the woman. Verse 48. Then he said to her. Let me just pause here. <laughs> you know, as I was reading through this and I don't know whether I'm just dreaming here. But go back. You know, Jesus speaks to the woman. This is the first time He's acknowledged her, right? You go back to the description in verse 38 of what the woman was doing. What was she doing? Just count the number of verbs. She stood behind Him, weeping, number two. She began to bathe His feet with her tears, number three. Number four: to dry them with her feet, uh, dry them with her hair. Number four. Then she continued kissing his feet, number five. And number six, anointing them with the ointment. Six verbs. The seventh verb is that Jesus speaks to her. And she, he speaks these words: "Your sins are forgiven." Most take this, not as Jesus forgiving her then and then, but rather declaring, your sins truly are forgiven. And those there, they listen to this, and they start questioning, who can say, who is this who even forgives sins? Because they know their Old Testament. They know in the Old Testament that the only one who can make such a declaration is Yahweh, the Lord himself. And now Jesus is going around doing things that only Yahweh can do. He's going around declaring, your sins are forgiven. That culmination, the seventh verb in that relationship between Jesus and the woman, the sinner. Your sins are forgiven. And then he declares, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Forgiveness costs. Forgiveness saves. But forgiveness also transforms. It has the ability to turn guilt into love. What a power. It has the ability to mend relationships. Lord, may we just care about them. <laughs> it has the ability to heal our past and to give us a better future. My prayer is, is that if we have some issue between a brother or a sister, that we will go through the steps, whether we are victim or whether we are perpetrator. If something doesn't come to mind, may we also be advocates for forgiveness, for a culture without forgiveness becomes brutal and harsh saints, forgiveness costs, forgiveness saves, and forgiveness transforms. May the Lord bless us as we meditate upon his word. Amen.